0: You're listening to Better Fishing with two bald biologists sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division.
1: And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor.
0: We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources.
1: Hey guys, this is Ben Ricks and I've got Corey Oakley here, Two Ball Biologist podcast again. We've got Jake Rash again. Jake, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you introduced yourself in the last one, but no one talks about you better than you. (laughs) Well, appreciate you having me back.
2: had a good time last time on and I'm looking forward to talking more about trout, but for me, I'm the Cold Water Research Coordinator for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, and that's just a probably too long of a title. But I'm the person that I get to work with trout across the western 26 counties of North Carolina. So
1: feel pretty lucky. The recommendation is to change your title to "I get to work with trout."
2: Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That would be a lot easier and better on a business
1: card, I Good think. Deal. So today. We're going to talk about our only native trout, correct?
2: That's right. Last time around, we covered a lot of ground and a lot of the waters and opportunities in the state. But today, I'd really like to zero in and talk about one type of trout in particular, and that's the brook trout.
1: So, I have never caught a brook trout. Corey, have you caught I a brook trout? I have caught a brook oh, trout. she's got one on me. His life list is a little bit longer.
0: I'm fairly confident it was a stocked brook trout. It was not a, a native brook trout. So, well, well, that's still, still a brook trout. Though. That's still cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So what else do they call brook trout in the mountains? They got all kinds of names, right? Well,
2: so yeah, you mentioned them being native and that's one of the things that's so, you know, special about brook trout is they're our only native trout. And by being that, that means they've been in the hills of North Carolina, you know, ever since people have. And so folks grew up in those areas and locally they're known as specks. Speckled trout.
0: I don't think that's right. Which That's not right, is it, Ben? From a flatlander, is that right?
1: Yeah, from a flatlander, you would confuse people. Yes, yeah. it would uh, be confusing. I knew that would be a touchy subject.
0: That's all right. We'll let it slide. I mean, we love brook trout too, so... If
1: that's what people call them... That's what people, that's call, what people them. call them. That's what people call them. So let's move on.
0: <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. How about that?
2: But you're totally right. And that's one of those local things where... They're obviously not spotted sea trout, right? Some of those other, which might be what you're talking about. I think
1: we've got a picture of one here yeah, in the do. studio behind us of a brook trout, which is awesome, and it does have specks on it. So see, it's not see? a misnomer.
2: Yeah, it so makes sense. They didn't just make it up. Yeah. It's appropriate, and that's a really really nice painting. And you can see some of the appeal of that fish because they're just gorgeous. Yeah, you know, I'm biased, but I think they're one of the prettiest fish that we have. And somebody the other day told me they like to think of them as the wildflowers of our mountain streams. And so that's pretty intense, but they get that colorful. They get really bright orange, particularly in the fall when they're getting ready to spawn. And so they are these gorgeous little fish that are swimming around the headwaters of our, of our mountains and folks really love them. And like I said, I'm biased, but... They're really, really neat fish, not just because they're native, but like calling them specks. There's that cultural significance too. where family after family has grown up fishing for these fish. And so they've got their stories and not only them, but folks are coming every year. to try to make their own story too. try to find them.
1: So native, let's talk a little bit about that. We've got browns, we've got rainbows. They're introduced. They're an excellent England opportunity. But the nativeness and the angler drive to catch that native trout, if you can, just kind of put in words the difference between those two angling goals.
2: Yeah, sure. Being native, they're the ones that were here. And so with the brown trout coming from Europe and rainbow trout coming over from the western U.S., they've occupied a lot of the habitat that used to just be brook trout, like clean, cold water that we we talked about a lot on the the last time I was here. A lot of that's occupied with those two non-native trout. And what's kind of unique about North Carolina is we've got way more rainbow trout than a lot of other states. It's kind of a gradient where as you work your way to the northeast, you start to see more brown trout. So really by the time you get up to Pennsylvania, there's definitely way more brown trout than there are rainbows. And so And so for us, we've got these populations of those browns and rainbows that got stocked way back when and self-reproducing and continuing on. And so in addition to that, brook trout themselves, not only dealing with these browns and rainbow trout in certain areas, they had a real hard time in the late 1800s, early 1900s in particular with really intensive logging practices that, did a lot of damage to their habitats and streams. And so what happened at that point, folks kind of realized that these really cool, pretty fish aren't here. So they tried to bring them back. And when they did that, they brought a lot of brook trout from up north, from hatcheries up north. And so that's something that we can talk about later on if you want. But we spend a lot of time trying to understand, you know, we're holding a brook trout. What is it? Is it one of our native fish, or is it one that potentially might have some linkage to those that were stocked a long time ago? So that's probably a much longer answer than you're looking for, but there's a lot of wild trout, including brook trout in North Carolina.
0: So I can hear it in your voice that there's a love for brook trout. Obviously, brook trout and you are friends because you've worked so long on them. Why should people in North Carolina care about brook trout? You've talked about they're important to people in the western part of the state, but why just generally the citizens of North Carolina, why should we care about brook trout?
2: One of the things that makes brook trout really special, from a biologist perspective, they sort of straddled this line of where we're really working hard to conserve them, to keep them here, maintain their habitats. But we also, if we do that successfully, we're doing it well enough where we've got these fishable populations folks. And so it's this really beautiful, special animal that should be here. And hopefully if we're doing our jobs, we're keeping them here and folks can get out, see them, enjoy them, and have those waters and experiences as part of their memory. But what also makes brook trout special is they live at the very tip top of these watersheds. Most of them are above about all these native Wild populations where they're reproducing and and growing on their own are above about 3,000 feet. So that means we're seeing them above most of the other fish species and they're at the tip top of these watersheds. And that's important because they have such critical habitat requirements. They need that clean, cold water. And so if we can protect their habitats and conserve them where the brook trout are healthy and doing well, that means the water. The animals below depend on, the fish below, and we as people depend on way downstream. is starting off at a much better place than if it was degraded or in such bad shape that the brook trout couldn't live. So essentially, when brook trout are doing well, the very tip tops of the watersheds that we all depend on, animals, fish, people downstream, is starting off at a better place. And so to me... That's just a really neat story that can help connect brook trout, maybe hundreds of miles away in the headwaters of, say, near Mount Mitchell, North Carolina, which is the highest point east of the Mississippi, to somebody who might live in Charlotte and thinking about waters flowing downhill and how maybe at one point where these water sources started. There's a really cool fish that's living there and it's living there because the water is in such good shape that they can do it.
1: Did I hear you correctly when you said, like, where we find brook trout, there's really not many other fish species? That's correct. So if I'm fishing for brook trout, that's about the only game in town at that point.
2: If you're getting up in the higher elevations and getting above that 3,000 foot mark, and now that's an average. There's some definitely below, but usually what we see on average is most of the time these brook trout populations are above some kind of natural barrier so that the rainbows and browns can't gain access to them. And usually the other fish species fall out too.
1: So a natural barrier, like a waterfall or something along Absolutely. those lines? Yep.
2: Absolutely. Gotcha. Waterfalls.
1: So brook trout, even though they don't reach the size you know, of some of our other fish that we catch in North Carolina, where they are, they're the boss. That's you know, it. You could think about it that way. And I like catching the boss
0: wherever I'm fishing. I do like catching the boss.
2: Yeah, yeah. And if you catch one over six inches... You know, in some of these places you've done something because you're, again, you're on top of the mountain in a really small stream. There's pools. They're in these pools. And, yeah, it's just kind of you and them when you get up there.
0: So you're saying really small stream for those of us that have not been on top of the mountain. What You know, a small stream to Ben and I in our childhood is a fairly large body of water in the mountains that'd be a river. So what's a small stream to you up on top of a mountain?
2: So we find these things. Depending, it varies. Everything kind of varies, right? But it's not uncommon to find brook trout in places where the stream really small might be three feet wide, but usually a little bigger than that. But on average, these bigger headwater systems that they're in, they could be six feet, often 10 feet, sometimes or less. But what happens are those systems as they move and work their way down the mountain, it changes elevation and you get these nice pools. And that's really where you're going to find brook trout or hanging out in those pools.
1: So you said six inches would be a nice one. So this isn't where I need to bring my 10-weight fly rod or anything like that, right? So talk to us a little bit about the tackle that most folks use to chase a brook trout.
2: Yeah, depending on where you went, dragging that 10-weight through the woods could be uh, hard within itself, much less trying to use it. So a lot of people scale down, and instead of a 10-weight I use everything, but my favorite rod to fish for brook trout. is a one weight, actually. A lot of folks, you know, two weight, three weight. Have uh, three weight. I like a lot too. But you're kind of adjusting with the resource, right? And so we're on like a. The last time I was here, we talked about delayed harvest trout waters. There's a bigger systems in general. You know, you probably want to use a five weight, something like that, in there. A little more versatile where you're fishing. Mostly, you can fish on the bottom, or you can fish stuff on top water. when you get in these smaller streams you kind of got to remember life's hard in these systems for fish and so you want to be stealthy and quiet in your presentation you want to not make a disturbance but if you can get a good cast and get something out there in front of them they're probably going to take a look at it and so a smaller setup and a lot of folks use tin car rods we mentioned that the last time which is, you know, very similar to a fly rod. So you definitely gotta adjust your game and get smaller.
1: So what if I'm not a fly fisherman? We talked about that. Can I catch a brook trout on um, ultralight or something like that?
2: You could. It's been done before. And it's something where you'll just have to be stealthy in a small ultralight and again trying to gear your tackle down. But that's kind of where I think it can be easier if you're trying to use the fly rod or that's where those, you know, ten car rods, which are almost just a fixed pole with a line on it because one of the things that you got to think about when you're in these, you know, headwater systems, and again, it all varies, but they're not open. Meaning you don't, it's not like you're standing on a the bow of a boat where you got a lot of freedom to cast. A lot of these casts are really tight. And frankly, with a fly rod, it's called a bow and arrow cast where you're just basically pulling the fly back and letting the tension and the and the rod snap. You let the fly go and it shoots it right to where you want it. And that's pretty effective because the tree canopies can be tight. So a little bit of work if you want to use the ultralight, but it's been done.
1: Sounds like it's one of the few places where fly gear, fly presentation is actually better than conventional fishing.
2: Yeah, because it's gentle. And it gets back to that not wanting to to scare or startle the fish, so you sneak up to them and just get something that kind of lays in there naturally. That's always better because at that point, like I said, they're hungry. Because uh, our our waters in North Carolina, they're not like other states. You know where they've got limestone deposits that are really rich in nutrients, and so you get tons of bug life and a lot of growth. Our waters aren't that productive, and so when you get in these headwater systems. There are bugs, but the productivity, meaning that that food web isn't what's available to eat, may not be as diverse as it is elsewhere. So these fish are are generally hungry. So if you're quiet, you can be be successful.
0: So it sounds to me, and I might be wrong, is that if you're going to go try to tackle wild native brook trout, you better know your gear before you go and be ready to go to somewhere that's remote. Does that sound about right? That's fair. There are some places
2: that are a little more accessible. North Carolina is awesome for so many reasons,
0: but I agree. We agree, one hundred percent. Yeah, the only place to live. I'm um, the right place, and evidently everybody's coming here. But anyway, I'd I agree. left
1: for a little bit and I came back. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're
2: glad you're back. I've never left.
0: Yeah, we're glad you're still here. I'll uh, leave it at that. Thanks, Jake.
2: Appreciate that. But the North Carolina is fortunate to have two really large national forests: the Pisgah and the National Forest. We've also got the Blue Ridge Parkway as well. But the point there is there's pretty solid road and trail networks available to gain access. But you can go off of those and get back deep into the woods quickly. And one of the things I like to tell people is when you're doing this, or honestly anything, if you're going to be on the water, tell somebody. Let somebody know where you're going, especially if you're going back into the woods. Make sure somebody knows where you're at. Because you can slip on a rock, and definitely talking from experience here, fall on a rock, and you want to make sure you've got either somebody with you, preferably, but if not, somebody knows where you're at. So,
1: And that's probably smart. No, I mean, if you're way up in the mountains, if you're on a lake or something, I mean, if no one knows to know that you're missing, you can be in a bad way for a good little minute.
2: Exactly. Yep.
1: Yep. That applies everywhere.
2: And then, you know, we're talking about areas that, you know, they're in, great cell phone coverage and, and all that sort of stuff. So
0: the whole thing, being prepared before you go, that's part of it. Sounds like my kind of place, not being in cell phone coverage, probably not being around a whole lot of people. I like that. It's why I became a fish biologist. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: exactly right. So where are we right now with Brook Trout? I mean, are we in good shape? Are we in bad shape? We're on the spectrum of things are the best they've ever been to maybe what you said earlier in the 1800s when the logging was bad and things were tough. And on that spectrum, where are we?
2: We are in a place where we definitely know more about brook trout than we ever have, which is great. In terms of where they're they're at, where they're living, their range has been reduced significantly from what it would have been historically. So there's a lot of estimates out there, but maybe even up to 80%. Of where they used to be, they're no longer found. So that's a challenge. But the good news is, as I noted, that we're we're really have spent the last couple decades learning a lot about these fish. and particularly getting back to, you know, I talked about those stockings from hatcheries up north. The, we have done a lot of work trying to understand the effects of those those stockings because those, Essentially, you're bringing fish from areas that they weren't naturally, and they have bred, and in some cases, even established populations of brook trout down here. So we do a ton of work to understand what the brook trout we're holding, what they really are. Are they like truly our native fish, or are they some sort of hatchery influence? And so that work has led us not only understand what we have, but it's helped us plan and do work to help conserve those populations and more. And so the whole goal is, again, we're trying to have as many as we can and as many places that they should be. So we've done work where we worked with partners to fix their habitat, meaning like to work on stuff alongside the stream to improve the cover above the streams to help address some temperature issues. In-stream habitat work, One of the, to help out where we're improving, you know, passage and and creating more habitat for fish, because one of the things that's happened is sort of, we mentioned how popular North Carolina is. The mountains is is really a destination place. And as a lot of folks move there, roads go in and sometimes these culverts or crossings over time, they may not be suitable for fish. So these brook trout can't get past them. They can't get upstream. So it cuts them off from the other parts of the population. And we do a lot of work to help fix that and reestablish that connectivity. And and maybe one of the biggest things that we do is where we know the habitat's suitable. We know brook trout used to be there. We're bringing populations back. And that's really one of the best days that you can have. You know, again, being biased is when we're we're reestablishing a population and That's really rewarding because there's been a ton of work to go into it. So, big picture, numbers are down from what they should be. However, there's a lot of work going on trying to change that.
0: So, if I go out and I catch a brook trout, can I hold that fish in my hand and know the difference between a brook trout that came, do they look different, a brook trout that's native to North Carolina versus a brook trout that came from a hatchery in the early 1900s?
2: No, there's a lot of rumor where folks... There's some suggestion that you
1: can... Accent. It's the accent. A, a northern brook trout talks different than a southern...
0: Are we southern? I'm not sure. Anyway.
1: It says y'all. Y'all. Yeah. Or Ewens, Ewens. <laughs> anyway. And it's a southern brook trout. It is a southern brook trout. Sorry. I digress.
2: No, 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 no. That's all right. I was going to make a joke about barbecue, but that didn't go too well the last time, so I'm going to leave that Let's out leave
0: barbecue alone. All right. We all can right, divide right. our
2: natives. I do want to come back and talk barbecue at some point.
0: That'll be a different podcast.
2: But to your actual question, no, you can't. And so how do you tell the difference? Genetics. We take small little pieces of tissue from the fish and then we work with the US Geological Survey that does our genetic work for us and we analyze each fish and can look at each population. And it can really tell us. So we're we're looking at genes to help make that distinction. Now You can make some generalities based on where you're at, and certainly folks can do that. But if you're in the wild brook trout population and just simply picking it up and being able to tell if there's some sort of hatchery influence generations ago, you got to get down to the genes to technically do that.
1: Gotcha. So if I was going to strike out to try to catch a brook trout two weeks from now, what resources does the Wildlife Commission have to help me in that pursuit.
2: Yeah, and I would recommend folks visit that org slash trout. We kind of call that our trout page. And what we've tried to do is get as much information as we can on there for anglers to not only learn more about, in this case, brook trout, but also how to get out and find resources. So on that page, there's a great interactive map that you can kind of look around and Try to find locations and, and even give you driving directions. We talked about this a little bit before about there's a hatch chart. So if you're looking to try to zero in on what flies you might want to use based on what time of year, kind of takes the guesswork out of that. And real humble plug for that that hatch chart, but it's a pretty good one. When we're proud of that because we did it in collaboration with Trout Unlimited and tried to make it as simple as possible for folks. And really, that website, ncwildlife.org slash trout, is a great place to learn more about resources. And then, of course, your listeners, if they've got specific questions, following those back to the program, we we'll would be glad to help anybody
1: out. You guys can always email us at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org, and we will forward said question to Jake. Absolutely. But... One question I have is in talking about the trout map, there's a lot of different designations and things like that. I think to some folks that can be a little bit intimidating. Let's talk a little bit about like how can we use that trout map to kind of decide where we might want to go to fish. The Wildlife Resources
2: Commission, we've got the different regulatory classifications. And when you look at that map, you'll see them color coded on there. And one of the things that you can do is you can click on a string segment, and it'll tell you more about that reach. Another thing that you can do is through that trout page is there's a, it's called a public mountain trout waters search, which basically what we've done is digitize the regs digest, the fishing digest, hunting and fishing digest, where folks can see what the signs are, click on a link and it takes you to that place on the map. And so through that trout page, we really. Provide a couple of different ways, including the signs themselves that you can click on and learn more about what they mean and what they are. And so, the last thing we want to do is have folks be confused. And when, whenever you're talking about, you know, like in this case, hunting brook trout in these wild brook trout that are higher in the mountains, that's probably going to fall under really two classifications, and that's our general wild trout classification, and that's also our. We do have one catch and release single hook artificial flies and lures only classification. So if you look at the map, there'll be the blue, the dark blue colors, and then the red. That would be the places higher up in the watersheds and the mountains to chase brook trout.
1: I think that's hugely helpful, and I didn't realize you could click on it online. You know, I've seen the paper maps and stuff like that, but to be able to just kind of go in there and tease those different things apart, I think that's very helpful to a lot of folks. So, Sure hope so. Yeah,
2: you click on a whether it's a trout lake or, or stream, and it should tell you more about that, that water body. So, hopefully, it helps folks.
0: So, we've heard everything about brook trout. What are your goals, which I'm assuming would be the Wildlife Commission's goals for brook trout in the future? What are some of your plans of things you're trying to do to conserve brook trout?
2: Mention how hard we're working on that just because of what special critter they are not just biologically because of our native trout, but we touched on the cultural importance too. You know, they're our trout. They're North Carolina's native trout, and along with others on the East Coast. And so, again, are working hard to make sure that we're trying to conserve these populations and doing a good enough job where they're fishable. And so if we're doing that, then we're being successful because we're finding ways to help maintain their habitat which is huge. Other goals, again, we're still trying to find them all. We work hard every year crawling through those remote areas, and we're still finding you know, a handful of populations we didn't even know existed. And that's after decades and decades of looking, going deeper and finding other areas in the mountains with our work. So we're trying to find them, understand what we can about them, and work particularly with partners to help address habitat. Concerns, and again, we're so fortunate to have great partners, not only in North Carolina but externally as well. Working with other states, other federal agencies, there's such a great commitment and effort to help Brook Trout out across their entire historic native range, up and down from Georgia all the way up to Maine in the U.S. Although there's challenges, it's exciting. There's hope. There's opportunities here to help. Keep a positive trajectory going.
0: So you mentioned that we're probably, maybe the number is 80% less of what brook trout might have been on the landscape, say, 500 years ago. Are we doing anything to try to restore brook trout? I know we're keeping pace with or trying to keep pace with the brook trout we know about, and we're learning about new brook trout areas. But say there's an area where there aren't brook trout, but there should have been. They've just gotten wiped out for whatever reason are we trying to restore populations or anything of that nature in those areas? Absolutely. And that's where it gets all that hard work of looking for them,
2: finding them, working through the genetics, addressing the habitat, all that sort of that's where you start to take all those ingredients of the work and then you really are baking the cake if you will. Bringing these populations back. That's literally what you're doing. And we don't just do that willy-nilly. The last thing that we want to do is just move fish around randomly. Absolutely, And so... It's gotten us in
0: trouble in the past.
2: A hundred percent. So we're trying to learn as much as we can about these populations to inform those decisions. And so we're now able to know the genetics of these source populations. We understand how many are in that stream, so we don't do harm to the stream we're taking them from and can be really strategic about what fish we move where to reestablish these populations and to have more on the landscape. And to me, as a biologist, I love it. I love working with anglers. I love working with people. And again, I think we let off what makes brook trout special. But for me, we get to do all this cool science and... It goes somewhere. It informs our actions and informs our decisions and it 100% helps us be more efficient and effective because we don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited money. The critters sure aren't unlimited so we have to make sure we're making the best decisions possible. So we do all this work and then it kind of comes together and then here we are putting fish back in and who knows, my son might go 15 years from now and catch one. Awesome.
1: So what else do we need to know about book trout, Jake?
2: Well, I hope I've got everybody fired up by how cool they are. They are... I'm um, clearly biased, but they're one of my favorite fish, if not my favorite fish. They're actually North Carolina's state freshwater fish. That's kind of a cool fact.
1: Sounds like rightfully so from everything you've laid out.
2: They're pretty special. They're pretty special. But I think the take home for me is there's still work to do. We're definitely committed to continuing to help these fish out. And I think that, again, it's not something that's just being done in a vacuum. And it's something that we're all natural resource agencies and partners are working on and the public, private landowners, anglers, Everybody can help address this and and contribute and do good things for brook trout. Because, like I mentioned earlier, if brook trout are doing really, really well in the headwaters of these places that we all depend on downstream, that trout conservation flows downstream and it's doing better things for everything and everyone down below it. So, I definitely encourage people to check out our website, ncwildlife.org, and also some of our partner work that's out there including the Eastern Brook Trout Joint Venture. And if you're in North Carolina, got a vehicle, you can purchase a special native Brook Trout license plate. Those funds come back to the Wildlife Resources Commission, and we take those dollars and put it in to that work that I've talked about earlier. And you can find a link to that license plate on the trout page as well.
0: So what I really want to know is, does a six-inch Brook Trout pull harder than a bluehead chub?
2: You know, probably, yeah. I've got to say that right. So that was an upper gag tributaries chasing those bluehead chubs around. That was a straight-up cane pole. There's like, no technology. There's like, a pole, some fishing line, and a hook, and earthworms.
0: It's as good as it gets right there. That's pretty much it.
2: Or yeah. crickets, or whatever you can catch on the ground. Whatever we had, that yeah. would go. The brook trout stuff, fishing with the one weight, It's a little more technology put into that. So there's a little more bend. So I don't know. Maybe it's not a fair comparison. Oh, okay.
1: For those of you who didn't hear the other trout podcast, we talked a little bit about Jake's beginnings with chub fishing, and we had to bring it full circle. But one more question about brook trout, and I asked a similar question with other trout fishing in North Carolina. But if I was targeting brook trout, I don't want to know your secret bait. If I was targeting brook trout and I had to have one readily available lure, what would you recommend?
0: I'd go with the L caddis. That was a letdown because I was last podcasting. It was the Is it same size. Same size. Is there anything different about it? It'd be the same size
2: because back to where these things are life's hard. They're hungry. If you can be quiet and make a good presentation, they're going to come
0: look at it because they got to eat. I do like a starving fish. Hungry fish, hungry are my fish favorite. are a whole lot better than those that have already eaten when I get there. That's right. Yeah, and hungry fish
1: generally please anglers more. Seem to. Okay. Well, before we finish up, we would like to talk about some uh, listener questions that they've had and they've sent us emails. Again, you guys can email us questions at. Two bald biologist at ncwildlife.org. But to get this started, Mr. Penninger, he emailed us and he asked us to talk about smallmouth bass fishing. And the good news, Corey, is that we're going to be talking about smallmouth bass next year, right? We're going to do that, a whole podcast.
0: For that's me. the plan is to talk about smallmouth next year for sure. Probably both the reservoir and riverine. Right.
1: But he asked, he said, it's hard to get information and good tips on smallmouth bass fishing. So just so he doesn't have to wait till next year. Sure. Let's give them a couple quick tidbits on what's the best way to look for smallmouth bass or be successful with smallmouth bass.
0: So one of the ways I do it is generally I'm fishing in North Carolina for smallmouth in the summertime when it's warm and I'm doing riverine smallmouth. And I'm kind of focused on what they're feeding on. A lot of times I throw a lot of crayfish patterns. Generally they're in rocky streams with crayfish. And so Basically, that's the kind of the pattern I start with, and then I'll change it up as I go along. Right.
1: Yeah, I would agree. It seems like smallmouth bass are either keyed in on crayfish or they're keyed in on fish of some sort.
0: Yeah, I would say they're probably, I don't reservoir smallmouth fish at all, or at least I haven't much in North Carolina, and I would say that that's probably a different pattern for sure. Those riverine fish are definitely keyed in on crayfish. A lot of people use like big lizards in the river. They'll throw lizards all summer long and catch Pretty good amounts of smallmouth bass, particularly up on the Dan River.
1: Right. So hopefully that's a little tidbit to get you by, but stay tuned because next year we're going to give you one or two podcasts that are totally smallmouth bass centric. So look out for that. So Mr. Larson, he's a big time crappy fisherman and he's even told us that he's having some success using LiveScope. Imagine that. So I just. A lot of people are. Put it on my boat, and I'm having some success with it now, too. But he's been fishing Baden Lake and Tilry and he noticed on our webpage that we've got some great information for Lake Jordan, but he couldn't find anything on Baden. And, Corey, if you would, tell our listeners where they can find our reports online. It's not always the
0: easiest it's place. It's not the easiest place to find them, for sure. I think the first tip I would tell you is to get in contact with your local biologist, your local district biologist. Baden and Tillery would be District 6. That biologist's name is Casey Jobert. She's great. She's got a wealth of information. You can reach out to her, use her name. And her name's listed on our website under our district biologist. You can find her. And and that's probably where I would start. We also have reports listed on our website as well. We don't have all our reports on the internet, but we do have quite a few. And you can find that at our phishing page and just look for Research and Reports. Look for that link. You'll find our reports there.
1: Right. And as always, if you can't figure out who to talk to,
0: call us. You
1: can call or email us yeah. and we'll take care of you. Yeah, soon.
0: absolutely. We'll get you the report you need.
1: So, and this last one's going to be a pretty easy question for you, Corey.
0: I don't know.
1: Might not be. It is. It's a good one, though. It's an important question. Okay. In Lake Baden, what is the best time of year to fish for blue catfish?
0: All year long. There's 12 months. That There's 12 that are, months. That are I can think of all 12 months. You have to fish them a little differently depending on the time of year. But really all 12 months for blue cats in reservoirs. They're not that hard to catch. You got to know where they are. I mean, that's part of it. You got to kind of do some hunting. You're not just going to go out there and find them right off hand unless you're just lucky. But yeah, it just depends. Sometimes in the heat of summer, they'll get up in the riverine portions of reservoirs. Sometimes they get down by the dams in the heat of summer chasing bait down by the dams. So just look for, really look for bait. And, you know, that's kind of a take-home message with our podcast is if you look for bait and find it, lo and behold, the predators are right there with them generally. So that's kind of a take-home message there.
1: As I said in a meeting one time, is these catfish are big and they're hungry. And really, it's all about that. If you learn the bait patterns, you will be able to stay on blue cats year-round. And it's really that that easy. It really is that simple. Get some good depth finders scan the lake, look for the bait, look for where it's sitting. If it's deep, if it's shallow, fish shallow. But really, there's not a bad time to fish for blue cats. And in fact, Tyler, who we had on a few episodes back, wintertime was his absolute hey, favorite
0: He it, blue cats. Yeah, he loves wintertime. Yeah, I mean, I've caught them, you know, fishing a lot at Lake Norman. I've caught them pretty much year-round in Lake Norman. They are generally right around balls of shad or balls of alewife, blueback herring in the lake. One of the phenomena at Lake Norman down by the dam in the summertime is the elwife will die off because of lack of oxygen, right. and those catfish will be waiting on those alewife to float up, and it's just gangbusters. I mean, you can load the boat with blue cats during that time of year. Just It doesn't happen for very long. It only happens about three weeks out of the year, but once, you know, if you know when that's going to happen and when that occurs, you'll really have pretty good success down there. Well... With that, I think we're,
1: unless you have anything else you want to add, I think we can call the brook trout one done as well.
2: No, I just appreciate y'all having me. This is great. It's fun. I can talk trout, I ain't talk fish. We know we've heard. Yeah. You want to keep going? (laughs) Uh, Hey, it's whatever. (laughs) I'm good. But I truly appreciate the opportunity. And I hope folks do explore and try to learn more about trout in general, but also, Take a look at native brook trout and see what that's all about
0: as well. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of great opportunities for our anglers out there in the western part of North Carolina.
1: It also sounds like with duck hunting, you know, everybody wants to shoot a pintail yeah. or, or a canvas bag. And maybe in the trout arena, that kind of upper echelon species seems to be the brook trout from what you're saying.
2: Diversity. There's so much you can do. A lot of people move to North Carolina and move to the mountains trout fish they may even come from out west where it's awesome and you know about it but it's really seasonal because it gets cold in a hurry but you can fish in a lot of seasons in north carolina for a lot of different species and yeah you're climbing up looking for those native brook trout that's a real special thing that's
1: great well i hope everybody gets an opportunity to catch one of these fish because brook trout definitely are a very interesting creature Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at biologists at ncwildlife.org.